Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the great logistics industry consolidation with my friend, Chris Wofford. How's it going, Chris? Doing great, Joe. Appreciate being here this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself and your company? Sure. So my name is Chris Wofford, and I've been an investment banker for 30 years. I've been working at very large firms like Donaldson, Lufkin, and Genret, Bear Stearns, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo over my career. Most recently, I was running transport and logistics at Wells Fargo and left there uh, in early 2021 to form my own M&A focused strategy firm. And you focus on us, transportation logistics, right? We do indeed. The area that we're very acutely focused on is transport logistics and increasingly tech-enabled services all within the overlay of the global supply chain. Very nice, very nice. So we'll get into more about your biz in a sec, but tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you started your own firm. Sure. Yeah, so I grew up in a small town called Lincoln outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Went to public high school and found my way to a small school called Oberlin College in North Central oh, Ohio. Very nice. Yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting blend of very fine academics, and I was a, uh, a mediocre uh, football and lacrosse player in high school, and it was a real passion of mine to keep playing in college, so I chose to go to a small school and managed to play both sports during college. I'll tell you what, there's something about playing sports that teaches you to grind it out, it teaches you to win, it teaches you to lose, and you look on LinkedIn how many people were athletes. And even if I, I was never an athlete at college, but I was forced to play. My mom and dad made me play everything. And I'm thankful for it. I never wanted to play the new sport. My dad would go, oh, I signed you up for water polo. I'm like, water polo? What am I doing? But once I got into it, I loved it. I loved that grind. Yeah, it teaches you to have grit and determination to be a good team player for sure. I was, uh, I was lucky enough to keep playing. I actually got to keep playing lacrosse into my 40s all over the place, Australia, California, Chicago, New York City, Boston. Uh, so it's been a passion of mine. That's been a real, uh, real joy over the years. I, I played a little bit of lacrosse. I couldn't even get the damn ball into my net. That's a <laughs> hard tough, sport. It's a tough game. It's a tough game. <laughs> but, but you know, after after college, I went and got my MBA at the University of Chicago and another great school, finance and strategy, and was really lucky. I I sort of just lucked into landing a job at Donaldson Lufkin and Genret in their Los Angeles office, which was the former Drexel Burnham team. Oh, where the junk bonds began. <laughs> you got it, exactly. That, so I stepped into that environment. All of those folks had been scooped up by DLJ at that point. Uh, we were working under a guy named Ken Mollis, who's you know quite prolific and ran UBS and now has his own firm. Um, so he was an epic guy to be working for. And that was my training ground, right? So dropped into the meat grinder right off the bat. and. Uh, that was where Michael Milliken was out there, right? Yep, spot on. He was the yeah. LA office too. Yep, that, that was, this was the team. That was where it all began. I mean, I, I think overall it's been a, a fantastic thing for the economy, but it seemed like it got overdone for a little while <laughs> back, back then when they first started. Sure, look, I mean, it's, it's a 
fundamentally really helpful creation in the capital structure stack, right? That there's a layer of risk that's hard to price. And he priced it. And, you know, did it get mispriced at the time? You know, I can't speak to Milken and that predates my, my exposure to it. But unquestionably, if you look at the way deals get done today, high yield and, and, and even, you know, the next evolution of it, which was mezzanine financing, have been real staple parts of how deals get done in, in the U.S. market. A lot more a lot more good came from that than bad, that's for sure. So so you got into this business, and then uh, how did you end up getting into the transportation and logistics side of it? Sure. Well, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I, my first 10 years were spent as an M&A banker, which makes me a little different than most of your transport finance people. I've been doing transport for 20 plus years now, but the first 10 were, as I said, uh, M&A focused. And I worked predominantly in telecom M&A for a guy named Lou Friedman, also a very prolific banker who was at DLJ and then went to become the head of M&A at Bear Stearns. And so he brought me with him when DLJ was acquired by Credit Suisse. And we were off to a good start and Lou came in on this massive contract and lo and behold, we hit the the, the tech meltdown of one, and there's no media and telecom M and A going on, and no one wanted to uh, to take Lou out because he was on this huge contract. But what could they do? They could take out his right hand man. So I sat there right. thinking about the slings and arrows that were being aimed at me, and I went to Lou and said, you know, I think I'm just going to have to go make this on my own, sink or swim. So I transferred out of telecom M and A into industrials M and A. And in that capacity, I did some metals and mining. I did some retail and consumer food, but I latched onto this group called Transport and Logistics. And the next thing you know, we were off to the races. Uh, the, the banker that I partnered with didn't do a whole lot of M&A at that point. He was really more into equities. And so I brought a strategic focus and M&A execution capability that just helped bring the group to a whole nother level. And, that, and, that, and that, that's in fact why B of A later recruited me to become the global head of transports in 2006. Very nice. So when and why did you start your own firm? Well, you know, I've had a long run and I've been at large firms, as I mentioned earlier. You know, I, I, those are amazing places. They're great proving grounds. You have, you know, I call it Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines of products and partners. But that also means it's harder to coordinate, right? It, it takes a while to turn a battleship. I was at, uh, most recently at Wells Fargo, where I was the head of transport and logistics the last three years. And that firm got itself into some real challenges with the whole retail banking fraud that happened. So we were under Congress's microscope and it led to three different CEOs in the three years that I was there, which meant continuous restructurings. And so at a, a certain point, the gentleman who hired me, who I have a lot of respect for, had departed and I had a new boss who I really didn't know And we both just sort of looked at each other. This is in late 2020, almost right at the sort of knocking on 2021. And we sort of looked at each other and just understood that it wasn't an ongoing good (laughs) fit. So uh, I I departed and wasn't quite sure what I was going to do next. And I spent a couple of months on my gardening leave. And a couple clients called me up and said, hey, Chris, we really value what you do strategically. Would you keep working with us? And so Warford Advisors was born and early 2021. And the next thing you knew, I was out hiring people. Now I have a half dozen folks on my staff and we've got a number of clients that we're on retainer with and we're plugging away real hard. Yeah. You know, I'd say this, I'm, I'm a big company guy myself. I spend a lot of time usually working with small, small companies, working with the biggest companies. And I think it's a fantastic place to work for so long. For so long, I thought that, but after a while, I think the grind of the bureaucracy and 
org charts and you know it's it's refreshing uh later in my career to say nope i'm not part of any of that now i do miss having a deep bench i do miss all the expertise around me but 100 <laughs> percent, we can go I mean, back <laughs> look at a certain point you know i'm in my 50s right and i know what it takes to generate revenue and what i'm having to fill out weekly sheets of how many calls have i put into how many ceos and how many cfos i mean i get it i get a big institution's right. having a hard time managing so many different people and they want to make sure people are being productive, but it gets right. to be uh, quite a burden. Yeah. And Chris, you're in a house on Nantucket overlooking the ocean. So I, I'm just going to say that's a better career choice for you. That just seems like a good fit for you right now. Uh, it's been so, great. It's been a so, great, great midlife change. Yep. So let's switch gears and talk about this great logistics industry consolidation. What's what's driving this? We all see it. We see big companies buying up other seemingly big companies. I also know of a lot of big companies or mid-sized companies buying smaller companies. What is driving all of this, what you would call M&A activity, I guess? Yeah. So look, you've got different forces at work and some of them are macro and some of them are micro. Unquestionably, there are monetary issues and fiscal stimulus issues that have pumped a lot of capital into the marketplace. We've got an environment with historically low costs of borrowing, and that's given birth to a whole flux of private equity capital that's seeking to be invested. And you know, I think one of the real hallmarks to, to point to how things have shifted is that private equity used to seek a five to seven year investment cycle, and in this in the modern era with the griddle being so hot, it's more of a two to three year hold period. So what do they want to do in those two to three years? They want to make acquisitions. That's generally part of a private equity strategy, which is to go out and make acquisitions to work down your purchase multiple. So if a if XYZ firm goes and buys a truckload broker for 12X, they're assuming they're going to do a slew of tack on acquisitions at six to eight to help right. work down their investment. So explain the uh, the multiples here. So you said the, tw- the the 12x. So the idea is you buy, and again, we're logistics, transportation, warehousing guys, so <laughs> you're going to need to educate us. If I buy a company, I got to buy a company that I can, that that's the platform company, so to speak, so Correct. I can add acquisitions to that. So talk about that that multiple that you bought for the platform company. Sure. Well, the way that the market tends to think about valuation is that we put a multiple on EBITDA. EBITDA is an acronym that stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So it's really a location on the income statement that's the best proxy that we have for free cash flow. And, and, and when I say the best proxy, it doesn't mean if you know if you have access to very detailed financials, you can come up with an actual free cash flow number. But when you're working on looking at public companies and private companies, you have limited access to data. It's a it's a uniform location that we have across all those income statements. So as that proxy for free cash flow, what we're doing essentially is putting a perpetuity multiple on that free cash flow. So we're saying, what is this worth into forever? And that 12X is a way to think about that number. And what that often, I mean, many very rigorous companies boil that down to a 10-year forecast and then what's the perpetuity growth rate that I'm assuming, which tends to be a couple percent. So give us give us an example. Let's just say, that, give us an example of that, like a company, let's just say some sort of trucking and brokerage company and they're making a hundred million on the top line. What would their EBITDA give us just an example? 
Well, if we assume for a second that it's a, let's just say a warehouse logistician that's doing a yep. hundred million dollars of gross revenue, margin profile on the EBITDA margin can range from, you know, less well run facilities from 5% up to, you know, 15% even better, depending on how specialized the offering is. But if we just use 10% yep. as an example, right, that's that's 10% on a hundred million, which is 10 million of EBITDA. Now that's a relatively small company in the right. realm of what I deal with. But if you think that that's a company that's got legs to it and you're excited about its prospects, you might come in and pay 10x for something like that. So now you're back to $100 million right. enterprise value for the firm. And, and that multiple could be eight or it could be 12, depending on how the market's going and what, what the individual attributes of the deal is, right? Absolutely. Well, the, the higher the growth prospects and the higher the profitability, generally higher the multiple. So you buy that first company, that's the platform, then that what, what you mean by platform is that's going to be what we build around, right? So then you talked about the next acquisition would not be at the same multiple. Ideally, it'd be at a, what do you say, six to eight multiple. Sure. So the private equity sponsor is out there trying to figure out how to create enhanced ROI. So if they go out and they keep paying 10x, they're going to be fully invested at 10x. And then when they go to sell, if they're selling at 10x in the future, they're going to be solely reliant on the growth profile. The other way to add the value is if you're buying it six, seven, eight times, then you're working down that investment to being less than 10. So if you then subsequently sell at 10, you're capturing more profit. So ideally, this is the business of private equity guys like you, is we're going to go buy a platform company and that has to be sufficiently big and sufficient, sufficient capabilities, the right customer base, so I can bolt on new parts that seem to fit well. The idea is these private equity guys, they're going to say, we own all this. We've got to get the right management in there. It might have been the management that we that was there when we bought it, but maybe we're bringing in the A-team to uh, grow this thing and make it more efficient, more effective, and more profitable, right? Absolutely. So, you know, the 100 million example, as I pointed out earlier, is on the smaller end of the spectrum. Right. What would be the normal deal size for those guys? Well, the hottest part of the market's sort of $25 million of EBITDA and up. As you cross over $100 million of EBITDA, you start getting into a larger, you know, there's a pyramid of private equity, right? And up at the top at the mega funds, the, the, the triangle gets more narrow. And in the middle of the triangle, it's quite a fat zip code. And that's that kind of $25 million plus of EBITDA. So yeah, you, you buy your platform company and you then look to expand the range of services that you're performing. Now, in certain instances, you know, if you look at Worldwide Express and uh, Global Trans, right, that was a merger of equals. In fact, back in my own career, I advised Herb Shear, who owned Genco, on buying a company called ATC Technology, and that was a merger of equals. So it, it depends upon the fortitude right. of the investor, what they're up to and taking on. But in that case, we put two 50 million EBITDA companies together to form a company that was subsequently bought by FedEx at a huge multiple. Nice, nicely done. That's the goal, right? So, so is private equity driving all this or are there other companies that are also b driving some of this activity? I'm glad you asked that. So, so no, it's not just a private equity story. You asked what was driving the volume of M&A and unquestionably that's a big, a big piece of it, that private equity capital seeking reinvestment and cycling through the market. But you've also got large strategics who also have access to relatively inexpensive capital and at this, at this juncture, with the equity markets valued at the levels that they are, they've also got dry powder in the form of their stock price, right? So you've got these really big players out there 
who are chock full of capital and looking to expand their own uh, networks and service offerings. And you know, one of the things that you and I had been chatting about before we got on the podcast was how important it is to be thinking about the global movement of freight. So the, the private equity story might be its own smaller player in North America, but when right. you start talking about UPS and FedEx, Deutsche Post, you're talking about the global movement of freight to the point where right. you're trying to do things like procure and contract manufacture in Asia and then put it on a container shipping line and bring it into the port of LA and get it through to the customer in the Midwest. Right. So that's, that's a very big drumbeat as well. How, who, the, sort of the race for what I'm going to call end-to-end networks globally. So that would be big companies that say, we are a fantastic trucking company. We have we have the right reach here, and we, we might even have a, a, our own full-service full brokerage, but we want to grow to better serve our customer. And what Maybe it's growing globally. Maybe it's getting last mile. It's, it's saying we have this huge customer base, and we're going to buy because it's a strategic fit for us. Right. So, so one of the things that... I tend to work by analogy, and as I mentioned, I was a telecom banker earlier in my career. So customer acquisition is a, is a huge cost if you think about yep. telecom as a, as a general category. All of us owning our iPhones today experience the fact that everybody's trying to monetize the fact that we're on the phone. Well, it's the same thing really in any business, which is you've got a customer and you want to capture as much of that spend as you possibly can. So if you're, in your example, if you're a trucking company, you've built out a brokerage division and you're looking at the consumer's needs. Now, your, your customer tends to be a B2B provider, right? So one of the other right. big trends that must be mentioned is how the B2C market has exploded right. <laughs> with this humongous acceleration of e-commerce adoption. So in the old days, the old days being 10, 15 years ago, now 15, 20 years ago, the B2B players were pretty contented doing what they were doing because outsourcing was such a big drumbeat driving right. driving their business models. Well, now suddenly you're looking to your right and you're saying, wow, that, that e-commerce explosion, that B2C market's awfully frothy and attractive and how do I capitalize on it? So you look at your customers and you say, okay, well, you know, Target or Best Buy, you know, how do I, what, do, what can I do to help you do more for your customer? And that drives you into final mile, it drives you into a whole slew of services that become additive. Consolidation platforms have been trading at big multiples that help bring freight together in different locations across the United States as a way to get full truckload volumes out and take you know costs out of the network. Now that's more of a B2B piece, but that's the flow of goods. And it's that flow of goods that I think is so critical because you're ultimately trying to put it into the hands of the consumer. So, so the first thing that's driving this is private equity guys doing their job, right? They see opportunity. There's lots of money to be spent, and that money is relatively inexpensive now. Secondly, we've got big players who are saying, I want to better serve my customer. I want to grow, grow my business that way, so I'm going to acquire somebody. So I'm going to acquire that final mile guy. So it, it, so I used to do – I'm working with all these retailers. I know they're going to need B2B. I, I'm sorry, final mile. So I – buy a final mile guy. What about the tech thing? I know we touched on it quite a bit when we were prepping. That's got to be driving a lot of this, right? Sure. It's a massive disruptor, right? So so, so you've got these huge tailwinds that we were just talking about in terms of capital and strategics trying to meet the customer's needs. And then you've got this, you know, gi- just gigantic piece of disruption, which is the, the great leveling, if you will. You develop some great algorithms to move freight. And suddenly the incumbents are sitting there going, 
wait a minute, so the truckers and the and the and the and the B two B customer are making their decision based on the technology interface, not on my brand name right. and my scale, right? right? So, so if you think about C H Robinson and J B Hunt and other players who have had a really cemented place in the market, when you start thinking about these algorithmic solutions, they're taking people out, so the costs are lower, so you can then underprice margin wise, and if you're an incumbent, you're looking at that, you know, with a chill up your spine saying, wait a minute, this is changing very rapidly. And of course, we've seen all those players put massive amounts of capital into their own technology platform. So don't hear me saying that they're not trying to keep abreast or even be advanced. The point is, though, that that has shifted the basis of competition. Right, right. And you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to Larry Gordon from MTech, and they do a lot of technology for logistics and transportation companies. And one of the things he was talking about is he said when he first started his career, he said we would do a lot of IT services, develop solutions for back office, for financial people, for HR people, and it's always the back office. And working in engineering, I remember we would just get this new technology, and they say, hey, effective immediately, we all need to use this, get trained, blah, blah, blah. And we would do it. And sometimes it was not even particularly well thought out. We always would think, like, God darn it, this new system you created sucks, right? They didn't get the user requirements. Now you look at today the way the technology it's customer facing and that's that you mentioned the chill up your spine imagine somebody seeing this fantastic tech platform that i can set you know like a flexport where somebody says i've been doing freight forwarding forever and all of a sudden i see flexport has got this global trade interface where you go oh my god what's happening sure <laughs> this game, and 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 everyone looks and says oh my god that's the future and you go, wait a sec, I, I've got boats and I've got ports. And I'm, <laughs> how can this possibly be? Yeah. And, and look, there's also a generational change going on, right? So, you know, if you think back in time, the customer used to be the transportation manager who within a B2B, who was really protecting his people and his his turf, right? Saying, you know, I'm not going to outsource, right? We're, we're, we're good at this. But as as competition has driven focusing on core competencies, that transportation department at, at you know a big retailer, for example, starts to become suspect, and that tends to be pushed into outsourcing. But but the point is, is then the customer changes, right? It's not the transportation manager any long any longer. It might be the chief technology officer. It might be the CFO. And so as the sale changes and there's a generational shift, who are much more conversant with technology, you know, you just have to accept that this is the way of the future. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, this comes up a little bit on my podcast occasionally is that I'm in my fifties and I can imagine what it's like when you grew a logistics company through relationships and capability and just doing the job over and over again. Maybe you bought some assets, maybe you own warehouses. And then somebody says, Hey, that the future is all this tech. I'm sure they're adopting it, but the, there's difference between I'm going to optimize my current process versus clean sheet of paper that somebody in Silicon Valley started with. And that's that's the scary part of some of this is because you can always optimize an existing process with technology. And I don't think that's scary even for people in their 50s. I think it's the clean sheet of paper that's the scary part when somebody sure. says, I just created something that the world's never seen and customers going to love it. Your customer's going to love it. <laughs> you know, Joe, one of my, you know, having gone to Chicago to get my MBA, I do, and I talked about working by analogy, you know, one of the things that I tend to focus on is, you know, where are we in the, in the growth curve of, 
of an industry and where is the industry headed? And, you know, I, I generally think that industry structures don't necessarily go all the way to Coke, Pepsi or AT&T, Verizon type structures, but they do head towards, you know, sort of clusters of, you know, supermarkets on one end and specialty stores on the other. And I do think that that kind of oligopolistic nature, you know, kind of a barbell structure is where we're ultimately going to end up because I think that the global players are going to be focused on end-to-end solutions. And if you're a big global mover of freight, you want to go to a 3PL who says, hey, I can do this for you soup to nuts, right? Because that's an easier sales solution. On the other hand, if you're doing very specialized freight, you got fresh flowers or something like that that can't sit at the port, you're going to want to hire somebody who specializes in refrigerated fresh flowers. So right. that that is, I think, where we're we're ultimately going to be headed. That's not where we are yet. The middle of the the middle of that pipe is still very fat. But I do think that that's the way you know that's the way I tend to think about how the market's going to evolve over time. So so we talked a little bit about what's driving this, and I'll summarize that in a minute. And then we talked about who's buying. We talk about the sellers. Who's selling right now, and why? Sure. Well, the way that I would describe this is, is the market's red hot right now. And that don't hear me trying to fan the flames. It's just sort of characterizing where we're, where we're at. So if you're somebody who's owned a business, if you're an entrepreneur who's owned a business that you've built from the ground up, at some point, you're either going to pass it along to your children or you're going to say to yourself, you know, what's this thing worth and when am I ultimately going to sell it? And so your advisors are all saying to you, now's a pretty good time. So you certainly have, uh, you certainly have a lot of family businesses that are, that are evaluating, is this the time to sell or not? AAA Cooper, you know, Redove sold into, into Knight, right? Which was a really interesting transaction in the space. But you also have what I mentioned a, a moment ago, which is the acceleration of the private equity volume by virtue of that holding period shrinking, which I've mentioned the right. five to seven turning into two to three. Well, it's turning into two to three because EBITDA, which we talked about earlier, cash flow is, you know, doubled or tripled, right? And so and, and that might even be without any MA. That may just be because of the e-commerce explosion we talked about. So as you're looking at that cash flow line, when you've doubled it or tripled it, it's awfully hard not to look at monetizing and, and taking advantage of the marketplace. So you see a lot of private equity businesses, you see family businesses. And then the other thing that, that you know can't we can't ignore is that strategics, as we said earlier, who've got, you know, dry powder, strong equity currencies are looking at doing transformational transactions. Uh, if you look at DSV, who's been a serial acquirer, you know, you have to ask yourself, what's, what's next? What, is, what does DSV do? I've seen their name, but I don't know what they do. Sure. Well, their origins were, they were really a, a, a domestic asset light trucking business in, in, the, in the northern part of Europe. And they are just unbelievably acquisitive and they like Fixer, I, I, if I say fixer-uppers, I don't mean to do them any disservice, but they like businesses that they look at where they can add value. And so they're the ones who bought UTI worldwide and they bought uh, you know, a whole string of freight forwarders in Europe. So today they're one of the largest international air and sea and domestic freight movers in Europe. And when you say strategics, that's the companies that are the big companies that say, I'm going to buy something that's strategic for my business. So that's adding the final mile. That's adding a geographic location that I don't currently serve. That's right. So it's not necessarily a public company, although generally it's a public company. So it could be a huge private company. You know, Geodis is a subsidiary of the French Railroad. They're a strategic. So it's a, it's a, a corporate owned entity or publicly traded entity. So it's not private equity controlled. 
and it's a player that's thinking about global strategies and how do we turn ourselves into, you know, I talked about supermarkets, right? How do we be a, a supermarket type business with global solutions? Right. So we talked about what's driving the market and just bullet point form, we, the e-commerce and the, the shift from B2B to B2C, that's certainly driving it. The tech disruption, money is not, it's, money's cheap, right? You said the market's hot and who's buying is private equity companies for the reasons you just described. Also big companies that see some strategic fit. And you talked about who's selling. These are companies that might be entrepreneurs or might be a group that says, hey, it's just the market's hot and we don't see ourselves as able to get to the next level. Let's let's sell, let's sell and take advantage of the hot market. So what does companies like yours do for all these guys? Well, I would say we're a little so so for, firstly, we advise clients from a strategic standpoint. And um, one of the whether things they're buyers or sellers. Whether they're buyers or sellers. We, we come to this with a very strategic mindset. I, I mentioned at the beginning of this call that I spent the first 10 years in M&A. So one of the things that's a little different about me from my competition is that I am, I wear two hats, right? I, I, I bring that the tactical and strategic mindset from being an M&A banker, and then I have the 20 years of being a transport banker. Usually that's two individuals at my competition as opposed to one. So that's a little bit of a different approach that we bring. That, that's why you're on the ocean in Nantucket today. <laughs> that's, kind, that's kind of you. So the first bucket I would categorize as acquisitions. The second category would be sales. The third would be doing studies. So we do, we do, it's a little different than most financial advisory firms. We will go in and look at market segmentation for our clients to help them pick out where they want to penetrate. If you said to me, hey, Chris, I want to buy something in Final Mile, uh, I want to go into e-commerce, those are the kinds of things that we would specialize in. And then because of all that M&A experience I had earlier where I was in the go-go 90s, I happen to have also done a significant number of hostile and contested transactions. So, you know, hostile takeovers, raid defense, complicated, you know, proxy contests, pro more complicated transactions, and have also managed to do a big bucket of cross-border work. So we call that complex or contested and cross-border. So I've represented Swiss companies. Those are the harder companies. deals. They are, yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, getting- Currency get, and cultures get, and- <laughs> Absolutely, and getting a French buyer used to the multiple environment. We talked about multiples earlier. Getting a French buyer used to uh, US multiples is an education process. Right. So, so you guys come, so people come to you and they say, Hey, it's time. I want to get out. We have a, we have a company or do, do you actually work with private equity companies that's come to you and say, help us make an acquisition? We do. I would say that one of our areas of, of specialization is working with big strategics, which we just talked about the definition of that a moment ago. I've had an unusual track record of working for large international players on executing meaningful, I might even call them transformational acquisitions. We, you know, I've done work for Ryder, for Genco, for UPS, for FedEx, but I've also done work for Kuhn and Ogle and those are big dogs there. <laughs> those are big. Those are all big dogs. Um, so we absolutely service private equity. We've we've got a long list of private equity transactions, but I, I really don't want to neglect the family businesses because that to me is, in fact, we're we're right now about to announce a transaction for a, a family business where I've had a decade long relationship and earned the trust of the the entrepreneur shareholder by being thoughtful and showing good ideas and being very patient. 
And um, that to me is a really satisfying part of the market to, to focus on where you're helping that entrepreneur put the money away for multiple generations to come. Yeah, you know, I, th- I always think this is a very difficult thing when you have that generational where dad's 70 years old and the kids are in the business, but one kid's in the business and two aren't in the business. And you go, what do we do here, right? And and the last thing you want to do as you, you know, sell your business is say, I'm going to ruin my kids with this, right? I'm going to have them fighting for generations. It's very unusual, I think. I'm pretty sure this is very unusual to see a business go two or three generations. It's, it takes, it takes a special deal to make that work. Most of them seem like they uh, end up with a whole bunch of court cases and uh, hurt feelings. And that's, you don't want that for your family. You made all this money. Why the hell ruin it? (laughs) You know, look, I think that's right. It's very challenging when you're the third generation, for example, and somebody shows up with a truckload full of money, which speaks for the next three generations to come and you're sitting in that seat saying, boy, what do I, you know, what would granddad have wanted me to do? Right. And I, I, I think that those are hard moments and they're moments where you do a lot of soul searching. I remember when, um, when I represented Herb Shear at Genco on buying ATC technology and that was an acquisition, but it was the same thing, right? He was putting all his chips in on the deal and he said, Chris, I'm going to go take a long walk on the beach with my wife right before I make this 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 big momentous choice and then he ultimately sold to Jenko and you know he's got a family office now and he's uh he's putting his money back to work yeah my my family didn't burden me with too much money (laughs) nor did mine so I'm going to summarize this and I want to get your final thoughts on this topic so again the topic today is what's driving the logistics industry consolidation with my friend Chris Wofford and so one of the things we talked about is we're kind of at an inflection point. We have a whole bunch of changes to the economy, some really accelerated by COVID. The, the, the shift to B to C, that's a, that's a big deal, the home delivery, right? We're all seeing that, the tech disruption, the cost of money, just the growth of these tech-centric everything in our business. So that's driving a lot of it. Who's buying? Private equity companies talked about. You also talked about big companies kind of making strategic decisions like how do I grow? Do, do I buy it or build it? And then you talked about who's selling, lots of reasons to sell, but a lot of these entrepreneur-owned companies or companies that don't think they can get to the next level easily. And then you talked about what companies like yours do. So give us some final thoughts on this topic. Well, you know, I think that you and I talked a little bit about end-to-end strategies. And I think the there's an interesting question, right, which is, first of all, you've got that, do I want to be specialty grocery store or the supermarket and I forgive me for using that analogy but that's a first threshold it's it's a good one for all of us right now (laughs) sure secondly you have to ask yourself as I think about the service offerings that I want to offer my my customers where am I going to most easily integrate acquisitions or and, and and Joe we didn't really talk about buy versus build which was something we talked about a bit before the call, but that buy versus build analysis obviously sits prominently in people's minds, right? Can I can I go and build a capability set for less than I can go buy it in the marketplace? Right. Because of course acquisitions come with integration risk. But that buy versus build analysis goes on for looking at these ancillary service offerings. Because if you can pull together a whole umbrella of service offerings, 
you start becoming a an entity that the customer cannot ignore and you're going to capture more and more of those dollars. So that, that strategic thinking about what fits, how do I expand the service offering? And then there's the geographic element too, right? We talk about end-to-end, but end-to-end has a geographic overlay to it. So a purely North American player may not want to dip their toe into the Asian market, whereas a global player like a Kunanagel or a DSV, a UPS, a rider, uh, not a rider, UPS or FedEx are going to have to be thinking globally. So you've got these competing elements, right? You've got, where do I want to be on that barbell? Where do I want to be in terms of the added service offerings? Where do I want to be in terms of the geographic dispersion of the network that I'm building? So I think we're, you know, we've got tailwinds. There's a lot of questions there that you have to answer. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think we've got just massive tailwinds in terms of the built up amount of capital that's seeking redeployment in the marketplace. We've got very solid. I mean, we obviously had historically high GDP levels. We still have sustained strong GDP levels. So you're looking at a very growthy market with a lot of capital being, you know, seeking a home. So these these elements are going to drive more and more volume. Now, the, the thesis question of this interview was, you know, the great consolidation. Well, if you buy my barbell theory, the middle of the pipe is going to get shifted one direction or the other. And that is consolidation at work, right? So do we end up with, I'm going to make this up, five global international air and sea freight forwarders who have domestic truckload brokerage networks tied to their air and sea networks so that you can move things from, you know, from from China into the heartland of the United States or from Europe into, you know, into into parts of Africa, right? right. I mean, those, those networks are being contemplated today. And so I think that, that that middle part of the pipe is going to get gobbled up as, uh, as these next few years um, unfold. Well, it's certainly going to be a wild ride between now and then. <laughs> so, Chris, I know I'm going to lose you at the bottom of the hour here. So before you go, tell us who do you serve and who's kind of your sweet spot? Well, our sweet spot, it really can, it, I hate to say it depends, it's a lousy answer, but we think that there's a segment of the market that's underserved, which is particularly corporations looking to do acquisitions, let's call it 100 million to 500 million, even up to a billion, where the larger investment banks tend to neglect that space because it's not very ROI positive for them. And as I said earlier, bringing that M&A mindset, that, that strategic logic, the industrial fit approach that we do, uh, we find that we've got a really high take-up rate on, on, uh, on that slice of the market. But we also feel that that's because we're willing to chop a lot of wood and be patient. And many of these relationships have been developed over you know, decades. At the same time, that family, that family business that we talked about tends to really appreciate our approach to the marketplace and the fact that we know all the potential buyers, right? So if you're an entrepreneur who's contemplating selling this business you've spent, you know, potentially multiple generations building, you're going to want to hire somebody who can pick up the phone and, you know, get Kevin Knight on the phone or, uh, you know, Robert Sanchez at Ryder. And, you know, 30 years later, we're lucky to, uh, to have that Rolodex. Right. And I think we, we didn't say this, but I think, uh, People need to also recognize if they're planning on selling their business, it's not going to be overnight. You should, if you think you're going to sell in a few years, you better call Chris now <laughs> because spot on. <laughs> these things don't go, don't happen tonight. They That's have very, to. <laughs> it's very wise advice. You want to, you want to time things right. You want to be super prepared. 
Well, I think also it makes sense to say I have an advisor. I have somebody who I know who's advising me. And, you know, you can make changes over two or three years. Uh, it's a lot harder when somebody says, hey, a key a key member of the team passed away, maybe an, the founder, and now we'd like to sell. And everyone knows there's blood in the water. It's a fire sale. That's not when you want to go about that business. That's right. There are always externalities that drive. Yeah, yeah look, the, the, the potential for tax reform that we're all reading in the newspaper every day. Oh, is isn't driving. that wonderful? <laughs> right. We've got a lot of entrepreneurs who are saying, boy, you know, sure, I've got great growth going into 2022, but if my tax rate's going to go up X percent, that basically, you know, deflates the growth I'm otherwise, you know, think that I'm going to monetize. So it pushes some decision making in real time. Yep. Yep. So, Chris, are you speaking at any conferences or doing any webinars, any new white papers that you want to tell us about? Uh, absolutely. So I was really pleased to be uh, the keynote speaker at a um, Pan-Asian M&A conference just about a month ago. And I was scheduled to be speaking at Armstrong just last week and a live deal interfered and the deals come first over the marketing. <laughs> so, you know, in addition to this, uh, to that that Asian conference and this podcast be on the lookout for us at uh, upcoming transportation conferences. Very nice. Very nice. So Chris, what I'll do is I'll put a link to your website, a link to your LinkedIn profile so we can reach out to you there. And then if you have any a transcript or a video of that speech, if it's around, I put that in the show notes for you too. Absolutely. We do have that. We can send that your way. Excellent. Chris, I really appreciate talking to people like you because you educate me about this, and I hope I hope my audience. It's so important to understand these things, and again, it's almost like uh, above the day-to-day din of the business, but it's it is so important, and we're seeing that. You read you read about these deals, and you go, my goodness, everything's changing so quickly, and it almost seems like it comes out of nowhere. But these aren't happening out of nowhere. There's guys like you doing it. Yes, indeed. I mean, look, the, the Maersk acquisition that just took place, a visible supply chain, $830 million deal. You know, I think for, for folks that were, st- that's the, you know, one of the largest container shipping companies in the world, now getting into e-commerce fulfillment and parcel uh, movements in the U.S. market, right? That it, For those of us that were studying them, it wasn't a surprise, but for most of the marketplace, that was a you know, a holy smokes moment, right? What, what's what's Maersk up to? So there's a lot of work that goes into these. And th- th- these are not spur of the moment decisions, as you as you uh, rightly pointed out. Right. And, you know, it's also interesting. You know, we, we have all these regional s- small parcel players and two of them just combined and or one bought the other. And we've been talking about that for a while, saying it's just a matter of time before somebody like yourself or, or one of your customers s- stitches together another national player. And I wouldn't, I'm never surprised by those kind of deals because you feel the market demanding it almost. There's going to be a lot more changes. It's just begun, hasn't it? Uh, well, you know, look, in the, in the, in the domestic e-commerce market, there's change, you know, happening by the day and absolutely laser shipping on track getting together has got to be a big wake up call for FedEx and, and UPS. And, and, and of course, let's not forget that, you know, the, the middle, the middle third of the country, they still need a, another platform. So I would expect that there is more appetite <laughs> there to build a nationwide alternative. Exactly. So we're going to be seeing a lot of things that shake up the incumbents. Yep. Well, Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. And thank all of you for listening to the podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. 
You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.